What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, philosophy, mythology, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth as we are getting very close to the end of the year 2022. It comes that one time a year, that special time, the time of gift giving, the time of parties with friends and family and chosen family, the time of Yule logs and Christmas trees and beautiful lights. Yes, this is the Midnight Myth holiday special episode, and I couldn't be more excited to be here. And the reason for that is because just about every holiday season, Laurel and I discuss, is this the Christmas episode that we're going to do? And we always say, now we want to do something else. And finally, we decided it is just time to talk about this movie, a movie that is very close to my heart, a movie that is very close to hopefully a lot of people's hearts. We're going to talk about the 2003 Christmas smash comedy hit Elf. Oh my God, it's been almost 20 years since Elf came out. Can you believe that? Yes, Yeah, actually, I kind of can too, but it is exciting to be here, exciting to be doing a Midnight Myth Christmas special, and very exciting to be talking about Elf. It's a movie I really love, a movie that I think, you know, we'll get into the does it hold up question, but certainly if we're watching it again nearly every year or every year, 20 years later, uh, that means it's doing something right. Yeah, this is a movie that we do watch just about every single Christmas. We try to make room to watch it. Have we done that every Christmas? No, there might have been one here or there where we missed. But for the most part, Elf is in that Elf, It's a Wonderful Life, Christmas Story, Miracle on 34th Street, like you name it, like Christmas classics, Die Hard for some, though that is debatable, in my opinion, whether that is or is not a Christmas movie. A topic for when I guess we will tackle the movie Die Hard at some point in the Midnight Myth. Oh, challenge accepted. We should definitely do a Die Hard, maybe next Christmas, and then we'll we'll have it out. What makes a Christmas movie a Christmas movie? But that being stated, we are here. We're going to be talking about Elf. I'm really, really stoked to do it. From the bottom of my heart, happy holidays 2022, whatever winter festival that you celebrate in December I hope you enjoy it. 
from the bottom of my heart, know that you are heard, you are seen, and you are loved. Oh, I love it. Beautiful holiday message there, Derek. Well, let's roll up our sleeves and get to work on Elf. But before we get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, my thing is that we would love to hear from you. We're on social media. We're at The Midnight Myth on Twitter. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We're also on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com. Those are all ways that you can reach out and say hi and connect with us. We would love to connect with you. Um, You can also... On our website, find a link to our merch store, or you can go directly to bit.ly slash shop myth. That's just been refreshed with a whole bunch of sleep and sorcery merch, as well as Wheel of Ka and uh, Midnight Myth merch on top of that. So definitely check that out. And while you're at it, if you're having trouble sleeping, you can't go to sleep because you're too excited for Santa to come down the chimney on Christmas Eve, check out Sleep and Sorcery. That is my podcast for folklore and fantasy-inspired sleep stories. So check that out and get a good night's sleep and support me on Patreon. Awesome. So shall we do the briefest of brief recaps? Go for it, Derek. The movie Elf starts with a human baby in an orphanage stowing aboard Santa's sleigh and being accidentally taken back to the North Pole where Santa's workshop is where all of the elves work on his toys. Buddy the elf ends up being adopted by another elf and raised among the elves. As it turns out, being a human in a world of elves is really difficult, and eventually Buddy ends up learning that he's actually a long-lost adopted human, and he decides he wants to travel to this magical land of New York City to find his real human father. Before he leaves, he learns that his human father is, in fact, on the naughty list. Dun, dun, dun. His father is a very ruthless child book-producing executive who has been ripping off kids, foreclosing on books, and acting like a general jerk and scrooge to his co-workers and to his wife and his son, When Buddy the Elf shows up, it does not go over well, him thinking that this is a Christmas Graham gone awry. When Buddy admits that, hey, you're my dad and I love you, he kicks him out. Buddy then has to adapt to the world of New York. He ends up kind of getting a job at a department store by mistake. There's a traditional fish-out-of-water story, but the general love, kindness, and goodness of Buddy ends up slowly winning everyone over. He ends up finding a girlfriend, and eventually the father ends up realizing that Buddy the Elf is actually his son, and he decides on Christmas Eve to walk out on the corporate board and go help Buddy, who's heartbroken, who finds Santa having the lack of Christmas cheer crashed his sleigh, stuck in Central Park, And everyone ends up singing, which revitalizes Santa, and he moves on. And there's this weird chase scene with the... uh, The Central Park Rangers. The Central Park Rangers, uh, which we'll get into. And then eventually, Buddy ends up learning to live to straddle both the elf world and the human world. His father, now on the nice list, helps Buddy publish his story, which is a smash hit. And he still finds time to go to the North Pole with his uh, presumably now wife to visit his elf family from time to time. Excellent recap. Wonderful. Buddy the Elf, it is a charming story. It stars Will Ferrell. It's a great cast. It is now almost a 20-year-old movie, and I think it's worth really asking, does this movie hold up? i say yes. I think, again, like 20 years after it came out, it has 
risen to the point of a Christmas tradition. And I think part of the reason for that is, of course, the buoyant and beautiful performance by Will Ferrell and the supporting cast, real legends in a lot of those roles, right? Ed Asner, James Caan, Bob Newhart, playing really fantastic roles that they get to really chew the scenery with. It's got all the hallmarks of a classic Christmas movie. It has this Scrooge-like character who comes around to the Christmas spirit. It has this really childlike sense of wonder, and it speaks really sincerely to the Christmas spirit. I think it holds up quite beautifully because it's not really playing any games. It's not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. It is certainly tongue-in-cheek with a lot of the humor that winks at adults while being funny for kids, but at the end of the day, it is a story about believing in the magic of Christmas, and that's a thing that continues to speak to people. So 100%, I think it holds up. I think the movie doesn't have a single ounce of cynicism in its very exactly cinematic DNA. I think it is achingly sincere, and there is something about a narrative, the fish-out-of-water story, where somebody is truly so fundamentally good that even a cold and ruthless and cynical world cannot change them. And in fact, their innate goodness makes people rise to the challenge of the love and kindness and generosity of Buddy. And one by one, all of the characters who start cynical, who start cold, they get changed by Buddy's goodness. It's always an interesting thing. They say when you're writing a good narrative that your, your hero needs to go on a journey that needs to fundamentally alter and change them. And while Buddy does get somewhat altered and changed, it's really everyone else around Buddy that need to change. Because Buddy's awesome. He doesn't know anything about greed or cruelty. He doesn't know anything about being selfish. All he knows is how to give and love and care for others. And all he does is give and love and care for others. And yes, all he knows are elf customs. So elf customs in a human is the humor. But the, the, the true crux of this story is Buddy just loving his dad and wanting nothing from him is what changes him. Buddy just loving his stepbrother and wanting nothing from him is what changed him. There's just a beautiful part where his stepbrother goes to his father saying, you know, Buddy just cares about you and others. And all you ever care about is your job and your money. And it just cuts James Caan, the father's character, to the core, realizing he is truly selfish. And though even though Buddy is thinks he's an elf, his goodness ends up inspiring goodness in others, which then powers Santa's sleigh. And the whole purpose of a Christmas narrative, to me, what makes it a Christmas narrative is to have, I would say, that fundamental Christmas goodness selflessness, love, family, friends, connecting to others, sacrificing yourself for others. And Buddy the Elf has that character in spades. And yes, the movie is really still funny. And I don't know if it works if it's not as funny as it is. But I also really love how it captures that quote-unquote spirit of Christmas. This idea that there's a special time of the year and that time is for just giving and caring and cheer and goodwill towards others. 
and having that being the magic that powers Santa's sleigh and having Buddy inspire others to have that magic to power Santa's sleigh, I thought it's a potent metaphor now, 20 years later, living in a world that is certainly more cynical than it was in 2003, a world that can feel crueler, a world that can feel less empathetic and less kind, makes a story like Buddy the Elf more necessary for us to revisit and more necessary to keep that in our hearts post the holiday season. I love it. That was really well said. You kind of took the words right out of my mouth with talking about Buddy's character development or even lack thereof. He is one of those flat arc characters who, while he grows and he develops in some ways, it's more important that he uh, infects everyone around him with his innate goodness. He changes everyone around him. I'd say the major character change that he goes through is that he, other than superficial changes like understanding how to ride escalators, uh, he he grows in a way to accommodate and sort of fit, he expands to fit within himself the idea that you can be on the naughty list and get yourself off, right? The fact that people on the naughty list are forgivable. The fact that uh, we can make mistakes and we can do the wrong thing and we can still eventually get back on Santa's nice list. He just grows to accommodate other people's flaws in a way that I think he wasn't ready for before. But what's most important about Buddy is that he retains, even in an adult human's body, the kind of wonder, the kind of innocence, the kind of unbridled and unfiltered joy and love that children have. And that is so synonymous with Christmas, with the Christmas spirit. The one thing about the movie that I didn't like in 2003, and I don't really like still in 2022, it's those mounted cops. I feel like that is a very odd choice to just introduce this like brutal police force at the very end of the third act, simply so you can have a chase scene. Like just make it that they need to get Santa's sleigh up so Santa has time to deliver the, the presents. Those were the stakes enough. How do we get Santa's sleigh to power? To have the, like this manufactured chase scene just to have some more special effects in the movie always felt a little shoehorned in at the end and never really made a ton of sense to me. Other than that, and that, that is more of a nitpick than like a deep criticism. Other than that, I think this movie ages like a fine wine. <laughs> a fine maple syrup. A fine maple syrup. <laughs> it is weird though. Suddenly there are these cops chasing Santa. Like if there's these cops and they see Santa, why are they chasing him? I don't know. I kind of, I, I, I think ordinance, it's funny. What ordinance has Santa broken? Does he not have a permit? I guess that's what it is. You know, I just actually, write him a ticket. I actually meant to do some research on this and see if there was any precedent to the like Santa versus law enforcement or Santa versus the Central Park Rangers in particular. And then I totally dropped the ball. But I bet if I tried, I could pull something out of my butt connecting St. Nicholas to law enforcement. St. Nicholas actually was arrested at the Council of Nicaea. So maybe he still holds that grudge after, you know, the fourth century. 
I mean, technically, what Santa does is a breaking and entering. He does a B and E every every night in every house. He commits a lot of crimes. <laughs> That's fair. So yeah, maybe Santa and law enforcement don't get along too there's, well. There's been an APP out for that jolly old elf, and he put them on the naughty list, and they never forgave him. Speaking of that, let's turn our eyes to uh, anything else to say on the does it hold up general themes of the movie. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Let's turn our eye to analysis, and I'd like to talk a little bit about the both historical and mythological uh, precedent for the idea of elves. Where do elves come from? How do we get to the modern incarnation of elves? And certainly, how do we get elves as partners with Santa making Santa's toys? Would that be okay with you? I would love it. Let's do it. So let us go back way, way, way back to the ancient Norse. Now, most people say... It is the ancient Norse um, mythological religion, pagan religion, which is the foundation by which we get the elf. And in that, it's worth noting almost everything we know about the ancient Norse religion was written down centuries after the religion was practiced by people in Iceland, which was not an original Scandinavian nation, but rather a Scandinavian medieval colony. So there's a caveat between what we know from written sources compared to what we see in archaeological sources. And so there's a lot of guesswork to try to connect the dots to say, what did the ancient Norse people actually believe? It's a little harder to say, but that caveat being stated, a lot of people think the modern elf is based off of the Alfar. The Alfar are a race of people. They live in the ancient Norse cosmology and they operate in a lot of different ways. The general thinking is they themselves were once deities that over time became less important deities. They still had people that worshiped them. There is like um, sacrificing archeological sites where there's evidence that they sacrificed to the Alfar. In the ancient Norse tradition, there are two God families, the Aesir and the Vanir. There are some that have suggested there's linguistical links that the Vanir and the Aflar are actually kind of the same, or at least rooted in the same. And of the Alflar, there are two fundamental types, what we call, and Alflar is what I learned, does not actually translate directly to elf, but for the purposes of simplicity, let's say that Alflar in English means elf because it's just easier to say. So the ancient Norse elf, there are two types, the sort of light elves, and the Dark Elves. The Dark Elves kind of go on to become dwarves in a lot of traditions. They are craftspeople. They are not always trusted. They make shrewd business decisions. They manufacture weapons for the god. While the Alpha are more ethereal, they usually represent um, nature. They can also represent sterility, um, so your ability to have children. They are also sometimes associated with death, they can also be called the Hoodle Folk, also known as the Hidden Folk. A common mythological trope that exists in just about every pagan tradition, every folklore tradition, are these creatures that have a foothold within the spirit world and a foothold within the human plane. And they act as intermediaries. Oftentimes they can be tricksters and problematic. We can think of sprites Fairies, yeah, fairies as those. Those are part of what gets folded into the elves. And so you have these Aflar who 
exist in our world who can travel to the realm of the gods and they can maybe steal your car keys or they can maybe put out the fire in your village or maybe they can cause the fire in your village. Maybe spoil your milk overnight. Other cultures have, like in Islamic cultures, they have the jinn, for example. So these can be somewhat elusive, tough to pin down, not a ton of sources. Some would worship as gods themselves. These minor spirits that hold common sway. In fact, in Iceland today, I think like 30% of people still think the Aflar, that stat could be way off, but a high percentage of people still think the Aflar are in Iceland and could have influence over day-to-day -day events. So how does this sort of elusive, half-god, half-mortal thing start to become an elf? And how do they start getting linked to elves? Well, in medieval England, the Anglo-Saxons, they come to form England, and they mold Anglo-Saxon and Celtic traditions. And there is this, you might have heard of it, story called Beowulf. And Beowulf starts to reframe the elf as a demonic figure, as a figure that is a demon designed to hurt people. I will quote Beowulf, of Cain awoke all that woeful breed, ettins and elves and evil spirits, as well as the giants that warred with gods. Cain being of Cain and Abel and the descendants of Cain's becoming demons and monsters for heroes, Christian heroes like Beowulf, Anglo-Saxon Christian heroes to go ahead and kill. We flash forward, William Shakespeare plays with the tradition of elves, in the Midsummer's Night Dream, written in the 1590s with an elf-like figure like Puck. Puck! Who kind of reinvigorates the playful, trickstery, hanging out in the woods. That creature that, like, if only you could move your eye fast enough, you could see that, you know, might, you know, take your, um, your car keys. So there's lots of different traditions going around playing with the elf. Obviously, we have J.R.R. Tolkien, really investing in an elf mythology that comes directly from the Norse tradition and the medieval tradition. But that is very separate from how we get to elves with Christmas. Like a lot of Christmas traditions, this starts to happen in the 1800s. And in 1823, there's a poem called A Visit from St. Nick, which better known today as The Night Before Christmas, which has the first documented reference linking elves and linking Christmas with calling Santa Claus, quote, that jolly old elf, end quote. That was the first time anyone brought the elf into Christmas and saying that Santa was kind of like one of these spirits. Then we can flash forward to 1857, and Harper's Weekly published a poem called The Wonders of Santa Claus, which tells about Santa, quote, keeps a great many elves at work, all working with all their might to make a million of pretty things, cakes, sugar plums, and toys to fill the stockings hung up by you-know-who by the little girls and boys. So this was now an adaptation a few decades later, still linking elves with Santa Claus, which again is causing people to talk about Santa and their elves, etc. Now in 1922... You may have heard of Norman Rockwell. 
He did a painting of an exhausted Santa surrounded by tiny little elves um, trying to finish a dollhouse. 1932, there's a Disney short called Santa's Workshop, which showed bearded blue-clad elves singing all about the elves. Then you have 2003 Elf. And then you have, post that, another big big moment for linking elves and Santa Claus is Elf on a Shelf. Pretty much cementing that, how does Santa make the toys? Where do the toys come from? They are made by elves. These Santa elves are smaller in stature compared to the Tolkien elf, which is also the Norse elf is not known to be short. They are not supposed to be short, but these are shorter. They take on gnome-like and sprite-like, so these are more other Germanic and Celtic qualities, and their job is to assist Santa Claus in the magical making of toys. So from this ancient religion that's hard to pin down over lots of discussion and debate and lots of folklore and myth-making, we finally get to a point with a cohesive Santa myth that has Santa potentially a saint, potentially an elf, a mixture of both his uh, pagan and Catholic origin, adopting a whole bunch of different visions of what it means to be an elf from the ancient Norse to more Celtic and other Germanic traditions, then co-opted by a post-industrial Christmas industry that starts to link the elves. In in other words, in the 1800s is when the Industrial Revolution starts to happen, when toys start being mass-produced. You need to have that foundation, that things can be mass-produced, to have Santa's elves mass-producing toys. So it's out of the industrial era where, hey, we've got Santa... Well, Santa's not just poofing the toys into existence. They've got to come from somewhere. Let's draw upon this folklore and tradition and mythology that's existed for a long time. And then let's introduce that into now a post-industrial working cohesive myth of Santa. And that's how we get to the elf. A working cohesive commercial myth of Santa. That's fascinating. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You know, what strikes me about all of this, and thank you for doing all of that research and bringing that together, because I really didn't know where the through line was. But what really strikes me as funny about all this is how similar it is to the way Santa Claus took shape himself, that we have this figure or we have this folkloric tradition that's been around for thousands of years, but that really truly didn't find its true form, the one that we have today, until the last 200 years. Right. So Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, who is the inspiration for this figure, lived around the fourth century BC or fourth century CE. 
doesn't become linked with Christmas until centuries later, way, way later. He's associated with being a gift giver um, and being a protector and a guardian figure, but he's got his own day on December 6th, St. Nicholas Day. He finally gets linked with Christmas and brought over into that tradition through the Christ child aspect, Christ Kindle, Chris Kringle, etc. And all of these different traditions finally come together over St. Nicholas and Christmas. Clement Clark Moore in Twas the Night Before Christmas or A Visit from St. Nicholas brings out the jolly old elf, you know, says he has a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. So you're picturing this little dude, this little tiny elf. And then the 19th century brings a little bit more color into it. The Coca-Cola company paints a bunch of paintings of Santa Claus and that's who we have today. He takes shape in the 19th and 20th centuries. It's really fascinating that the elf tradition sort of went along a similar traje trajectory, right? It starts as this folklore. It starts as something that is among communities and is has all of these variations, and then it gets codified and brought into this more commercial aspect of Christmas in order to create that cohesive mythology. Sorry if I just kind of summarized everything you just said, but it, it struck me as really interesting how we probably all think Santa has had elves forever, but in fact, Santa's only had elves for like 200 years. Well, Santa Claus myth is not that old. Right. As you were just saying. And there are these whole confluences of forces around what forms this myth. A lot of it is organic. And you mentioned that it's commercial because Christmas as we know it is a commercial holiday which is often said and maligned as making it a not a sincere holiday. But let's be honest, we all love consuming our Christmas rituals. And those are movies like Elf. And so the, the parallel tracks of a post-industrial modern holiday that involves ancient myths, you know, drawing from those ancient myths, you have all of these things coming together which then forms the Santa Claus myth, which is now synonymous with the myth of elves. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the movie, um, Buddy's dad says there are only three careers you can have, only three professions you can have as an elf. You can bake cookies in a tree, which has its own, you know, <laughs> perils, obviously, baking in a tree and in the dry season. You can work as a cobbler's assistant. You can make shoes overnight. So he's pulling from some folklore and some fairy tales there and is also pulling from the Keebler Elves marketing campaign. And then he says the third one is what we call the big show, right? Working in Santa's workshop. That's the ideal place for the elf. Uh, but he is linking the folkloric, the marketing, and the mash of the two in Santa's workshop. Totally love it. Which makes me wonder, there's no sort of inkling in this movie of whether or not these elves get paid at Santa's workshop at all, whether or not they've unionized. Is there a potential Marxist reading of the movie Elf that what they really are is alienated because they will never... Um, they will always be separated from the means of production. Oh my God. Is well, Santa Claus really a capitalist boss? This is a whole lot of rabbit hole for a Thursday evening, but 
if we're going by Harry Potter rules, they are all wearing clothes. So we know they're paid, right? We know they're not <laughs> enslaved. Um, I, I don't think you can bring Harry Potter into Elf. I'm sorry. No, I'm definitely just completely mashing all of the, the pop culture franchises. But an interesting question, especially when Buddy is concerned, right? Like he doesn't fit the cookie cutter mold of what an elf is supposed to be. Obviously, he's a different species. But the alienation that he feels because he doesn't fit as a cog in this machine is really distressing to him. Absolutely. So, uh, I guess that would run counter to the Marxist because if it were true Marxist narrative, then, you know, really Buddy should be running the revolution. Instead, he leaves to go find his dad and then ends up making books of his own. So it seems like he's a full participant in the capitalist system. So perhaps there is no capitalist critique in the movie Elf. All right. Well, I'm very disappointed and we should all just close up shop. That's it. John Favreau, do better next time. Do better. Make a Star War. Um, anyway, so I would love to segue, if you wouldn't mind, from the elf and the kind of historical into, I really want to unpack this thing that you said in the beginning about cynicism and about there being not even a drop of cynicism in this movie and where that fits in with the Christmas story writ large and the history of Christmas and Elf itself. Sure, do it. Cool. So one of the ways I wanted to approach this episode was I was interested in why Buddy went to New York, to New York City of all the places in the world. And part of the answer to that is pretty simple. New York is one of the most interesting places to see on screen. It's a city that never sleeps. It's probably the strongest antithesis to Buddy's experience in the Technicolor Wonderland and Candy Cane Forest of talking narwhals that he lives in. So certainly it's a great setting for a fish-out-of-water narrative. But New York City also is home of many beloved Christmas traditions and Christmas season traditions, right? The Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which ushers in the Christmas season with the riding of Santa on the final float. Macy's itself having hosted a miracle on 34th Street, having its department store Santas, the Rockefeller Plaza Christmas tree, and the ice skating rink, the wonderful window displays. There is so much about New York that really activates and brings Christmas to life. So one of the ways I wanted to approach it was to look at kind of the history of Christmas in New York. Certainly New York can claim a huge influence over the development of contemporary Christmas. Some of the things that we already talked about tonight, like the, uh, the literary influence over Christmas, really originates in New York City and New York State. Clement Clark Moore wrote A Visit from St. Nicholas. He's from New York. Washington Irving writes this hugely influential book called Knickerbocker's History of New York, this satire that helps to solidify the image of St. Nicholas and later Santa Claus. And the department store Santa, it did not originate in New York City. There is some debate as to where it originated, whether that's Philadelphia, Philly Philly, or uh, this place called Brogdon, Massachusetts. Depending on who you ask, it's one or the other. Between you and me, it's Philadelphia. Yep. For the rest of the the debate and discussion, it's going to be Philadelphia because that's where we're from. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this is all taking place in the 19th century, the same century as we get Charles Dickens at Christmas Carol across the pond and we get the 
interesting developments of Victorian Christmas that also play so much into our picture of what Christmas is today. Not just traditions like the Christmas tree, but the feelings of charity and love and family and giving. But anyway, that overview aside, I really decided that what I wanted to do is think about cynicism, think about sincerity, and tell you one story about something that happened in New York in the 19th century, at the tail end of the 19th century. I think this story cuts a little bit deeper to the themes of Elf, those themes being an embrace of childlike wonder, the casting off of cynicism, and the pure belief in the magic of the season, belief in Santa Claus or a Christmas spirit, whatever you want to call it, being presented as a literal fuel for Santa's sleigh in this movie. At its heart, Elf is all about faith, right? So the story I'm going to tell you is the story of the most famous newspaper editorial ever written. It was published in 1897 by the New York Sun. It starts with a little girl whose name was Virginia O'Hanlon, and she has a burning question. And where does she go to ask this question? She writes to the editorial editor at the New York Sun. It reads, Dear Editor, I am eight years old. Some of my little friends say there is no Santa Claus. Papa says, if you see it in the sun, it's so. Please tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus? Virginia O'Hanlon, 115 West 95th Street. Virginia's letter arrives at the desk of the editor, and he assigns it to one of his chief writers, who is a man named Francis Farcellus Church. It's an amazing name. Uh, Frank initially scoffs at the idea of writing a response to such a childish letter. He is a serious journalist, and he doesn't want to write it. But reluctantly, he ends up agreeing, not realizing that his response is going to become history's most reprinted newspaper editorial. For context, Church is a celebrated journalist. He, is, uh, he served as a war correspondent for the New York Times during the Civil War. He wrote thousands of editorials and was known for his balanced objective writing style, particularly on subjects of religious importance. He was also an atheist, and he was a hardened cynic. After witnessing the horrors of the Civil War, you know, it's hard to blame him for feeling skeptical about human nature, so we can kind of understand that. But nevertheless, he agrees to write the response, but he doesn't sign his name. He's never actually associated with it until long after his death. Nobody knew he wrote it. But he writes, and I hope you'll permit me to read it in full. It's not long. Um, I know you're going to have some epistemological qualms with it, Derek, but I think it will stir your heartstrings just like it stirred mine. Virginia, your little friends are wrong. They have been affected by the skepticism of a skeptical age. They do not believe except they see. They think that nothing can be which is not comprehensible by their little minds. All minds, Virginia, whether they be men's or children's, are little. In this great universe of ours, man is a mere insect, an ant in his intellect, as compared with the boundless world about him, as measured by the intelligence capable of grasping the whole of truth and knowledge. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. He exists as certainly as love and generosity and devotion exist. And you know that they abound and give to your life its highest beauty and joy. Alas, how dreary would the world be if there were no Santa Claus. It would be as dreary as if there were no Virginias. 
There would be no childlike faith then, no poetry, no romance to make tolerable this existence. We should have no enjoyment except in sense and sight. The eternal light with which childhood fills the world would be extinguished. Not believe in Santa Claus? You might as well not believe in fairies. You might get your papa to hire men to watch in all the chimneys on Christmas Eve to catch Santa Claus. But even if they did not see Santa Claus coming down, what would that prove? Nobody sees Santa Claus, but that is no sign that there is no Santa Claus. The most real things in the world are those that neither children nor men can see. Did you ever see fairies dancing on the lawn? Of course not. But that's no proof that they are not there. Nobody can conceive or imagine all the wonders there are unseen and unseeable in the world. You may tear apart the baby's rattle and see what makes the noise inside, but there is a veil covering the unseen world which not the strongest man, nor even the united strength of all the strongest men that ever lived could tear apart. Only faith, fancy, poetry, love, romance can push aside that curtain and view the picture of the supernal beauty and glory beyond. Is it all real? Ah, Virginia. In this world, there is nothing else real and abiding. No Santa Claus. Thank God he lives, and he lives forever. A thousand years from now, Virginia, nay, ten times ten thousand years from now, he will continue to make glad the heart of childhood. What made you think I'd have an epistemological problem with it? I'm just curious. Just the lines about, you know, just because you can't see fairies doesn't mean they don't exist. It's no, uh, that's no proof that something doesn't exist just because you can't see it. Well, I can't see air. Right, yeah. Right? I fair. can't see atoms. I could if I really wanted to, but like, you, but they just, I, I don't think there's anything epistemologically unsound about that response, especially if speaking to a child about Santa Claus. I think that is probably one of the most perfect ways to discuss the difference between a literal and a symbolic truth. Something that we've talked about that Joseph Campbell talks about in A Hero with a Thousand Faces that we've mentioned before. There's a difference between something being literally true and symbolically true. And in the realm of myth, we deal with symbolic truth. We don't deal with literal truth in the way that I'm literally talking to a microphone but that doesn't make the stories false. And in that respect, that answer to does Santa Claus exist is the most rational, insane way that you can handle that, that debate. And it is very much about the topic that we sort of started with, with the elves, is that, that creature that if you see kind of in the sight of your eye that you could sense is there, but you're just not fast enough to actually catch a glimpse of them, that's Santa Claus. And there are so many forces that are literally true that exist in the world that don't have a sensory component. We don't, we, we can't see gravity. You can't see love. Yet all of these things are true and exist. And so I don't think there's anything epistemologically, um, you know, like that wouldn't pass the muster of a graduate level philosophy class, sure. 
But that's not what that piece of writing was trying to do anyway. It, it wasn't trying to write the philosophy of Santa Claus. It was trying to talk to a child about wonder and beauty and gift giving and the idea that, you know, you have this narrow, small part of your life where the difference between the, the, the literal and symbolic truths are blended and you don't know how to separate them. And that time is childhood. And you only get this one period of your life where you can literally and symbolically believe in Santa Claus. You can literally and symbolically believe in elves and fairies and all of the other magical things that aren't literally true, such as ghosts. They ex that's <laughs> Ghosts are symbolically but not literally true. You know, and so like... You only have this one moment in time where that line is blurred and the rest of us either are educated and learn and grow out of it and realize that's not how the world literally works or we become stunted and we don't get to intellectually grow. But for that brief time, you have to, you have to encourage it, you know, because you only get it. You only get to get it for such a small point of your life. If you live to the average life expectancy, the period of your life in which it's acceptable to think magic is real, doesn't equal even equal 10%, right? It's less than, it's probably like 5% of your life, you can literally believe in magic. So you can't go and tell the child that no, magic isn't real. But how do you frame it in a way that is also palatable to the adults? And I thought that writer there walk that line with an elegance and beauty that I think is great. And I would never attack it on its epistemological grounds. Okay. I'm glad that you and I agree. I just wanted to, to clear the air there. Um, excellent. So why I think this story resonates so much with Elf, you already laid a lot of it out, right? The idea that there is such a short time in your life when you have access to this literal truth as well as the symbolic truth. Buddy is the embodiment of someone who holds on to that literal truth much longer than most people do. And in this movie universe, that literal truth is literally true. But through that, he's able to inspire faith in others that they think they had lost. Another thing that I think is important is thinking about the writer, is thinking about Francis Church, who was a cynic, who was not interested in writing this. And then he sat down and he banged it out in a day and he wrote it in 500 words. And it is one of the most poignant and one of the most perfect responses ever seen to that question. It's been reprinted countless times. It's been adapted into movies and musicals and animated Christmas specials. But this person, something in his heart spurred him to say that to this little girl, even though he didn't have a family. You know, he had seen Americans killing each other on a battlefield. And there's something about that that rings so powerful, right? The idea that tapping into the need for childlike innocence, the need to believe in magic, and the purity of Christmas spirit and faith is able to make someone whose heart should be hardened much softer, right? It's, it, it brings me to thinking about Buddy's dad, who we know has great love and has great capacity for love and just has not exercised it in many, many years. 
someone comes along and helps him believe, and then he helps other people believe. I, I think there is so much in that story, in that true story from this very important time in New York's history and in the world's history as it comes to the development of Christmas that explains why the great Christmas movies are always about faith, right? Are always about belief, are always about really sinking your teeth into what you believe and that thing you believe being in goodness, being in ultimate light, goodness, and joy, and the idea that we can all be better people. And it's really easy to look at the landscape of 2003 New York and be cynical. It's really easy to look at 2003 New York, post 9-11 New York, and be like, this environment is hostile, it's threatening, nobody cares about anyone, why don't we give up and just be self-interested only? Only act within the interest of, for me and myself and I. And then here comes a character like Buddy the Elf to be like, man, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. And then how many adults in this movie forget that they know how to sing? And Buddy inspires them to sing. And that is just the one, one of this, the many little tidbits here in this movie that really resonates with the theme of, of trying to keep that childlike wonder. You don't have, like, Buddy the Elf cannot function in the adult world. It is problematic. He is more elf than human. It does not work. He would not literally survive in this. But he can take all the people who are really good at surviving in this crazy world, even some of the worst character, the characters that work retail and are struggling and everything, they're going to survive better than Buddy, who's sleeping in the you know, department store because he's actually homeless. They're at least doing a little bit better than that. So they know how to survive just a smidge better than Buddy compared to then the other characters who were rich and well off and doing great in this world. You know, Buddy the elf inspires them all to sing, to have a little bit of that childlike wonder. And it's, I remember young Derek. I remember Derek post high school before my niece and nephew were born, really just disliking Christmas. It just being a drag, it being a big to-do and getting gifts and nothing ever pans out. And by the way, I'm not Christian, so I don't care about the birth of Christ. I think that's all hogwash, as well as then this is just a holiday invented by toy makers so that they can go from the red, which is not profitable, to the black, which is profitable, which is why there's Black Friday. And we all just dopely go along with this big business. And then my niece was born. And I saw her interacting with Christmas with true childlike wonder. And I'm like, I was like that once. I can capture some of that essence. I can't be like Buddy the Elf. And be and completely devoid of the adult responsibilities as as well as the cynicism that goes with that. I can't completely become like my niece, but I get to see that childlike wonder in her. I get to see it then. My nephew was born. 
Now I am a parent and I get to see it in my son. And that magic, I can't see it. I can't quantify it. I can't put it in a laboratory and experiment on it the way like a Jack Skellington would or the way any secular rationalist would, but it is absolutely real. It is absolutely true that that magic in around this time exists. And seeing that as a first an uncle, now a parent, makes me rethink those dark, cynical times and be like, you know, that's the easy way out. It's harder to believe. It is easier to be cynical and be like, it's all BS and I'm above it. It's much harder to be like, a part of me can still be a kid. And a part of me can live through the kids that I can help them have the magic that they need at this time. I can, and by that, I can encourage the myth of Christmas to live on for another generation so that when my niece and nephew and my son, if they ever decide to be parents, can pass that on to their children. Maybe we can't be Buddy, but we can be Jovi, right? We can pull ourselves out of cynicism, even if we're working a slog of a retail job as a Christmas elf at Gimbel's department store, we can rediscover our love of Christmas through the eyes of someone else. Maybe we can't be Virginia anymore, but we can be Francis Farcellus Church. We can help someone else believe. We can foster someone else's faith in an unseen world, in an unseen magical world. I took Arthur yesterday to, uh, there's a really sweet little block in South Philadelphia that calls itself the Miracle on South 13th Street. Because for just this one city block, every house goes all out with their Christmas lights and their decorations. They do like big inflatable Grinches and all kinds of really cool, fun, creative Christmas decorations on this tiny city block and all these row homes. It's just like somebody threw Christmas lights up on the um, on the sidewalk. It's amazing. Took Arthur through it and he just, his eyes were so bright and he's just, we're walking down the street and he goes, Christmas whites. And everyone on the street is just laughing at how cute he was just screaming Christmas lights and Mickey and the Grinch. And that is something like I would pay money for that feeling. I, I can't tell you how good that felt to see someone else be so brightened by something I've seen a thousand times. Um, so that's just what you're talking about. And that's what Elf makes us feel, right? That is a gift that we can give to the next generation. I absolutely love it. Just a quick side note. The character Jovi, I forgot about this. Zoe Obviously, Deschanel, yeah. her name, Zoe Deschanel, great, great actor, great performance. The name Jovi, while it, it seems to connote jovial, obviously, and yeah, jolly, joy. And, yeah. and joy and all of those things. It also kind of reminds me of Jove, who is the king of the Roman gods, Jove, which is another name for Jupiter. So I kind of liked that there is this sort of paganiness. One thing I love about Christmas is all these little pagany things yeah, that kind of get bundled into the Catholic thing. Absolutely. I love that. What else you got? Uh, that is, I think, all I got for Elf. Well, from the Midnight Myth family to you, thank you so much for listening. We are wishing you a healthy, happy, safe, joyful, weird, ghost-filled 
giant filled. We want the light elves and the dark elves to steal your keys and give you gingerbread. Every type of holiday tradition that you could or would and want to have. We wish you a merry, merry winter solstice festival. And until next time, be kind. You sit on a throne of lies.